want to thank Brother Tim for opening the word to us on the last Sunday of the last year, and good to be back um, together on this first Sunday of the new year. Our passage this morning is fitting for the first Lord's Day of the new year. When we start a new year, it's good for us to ask why we even do the things that we do, and why do we gather to worship as we do? I mean, what does it mean, and why does it actually matter? I mean, to be human is to worship something, however worthy or unworthy that object of devotion might be. Uh, we were created to worship. That doesn't really mean that our worship has value. And so it's important for us to actually think about the nature of true worship. And that's exactly what our text does uh, this morning in John 12, 1 through 11. If you have a copy of the Word or if you want to follow it on the screen, uh, we're going to look at that passage. Now I draw your attention to it and learn from it um, what the Lord would have us learn. So John 12, 1 through 11, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. You recall that in ancient days you would recline uh, feet away from the table, head toward the table, uh, rather than pulling chairs up around a table. Different culture but that's why it talks about reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So there's Mary, there's Judas, and then there's the chief priests. All three outwardly show worship concerns. Mary, one of the two sisters of Lazarus, whom Jesus recently raised from the dead, known for sitting at Jesus' feet to hear Him teach. Judas, one of the twelve, and the chief priest, the guardians of temple worship that God had instituted. Only Mary, however, receives the approval of Jesus. Her devotion was real and showed insight into the sacrificial mission of Jesus as the Messiah. So we want to look at this text under these three headings. First, in verses 1 through 3, we look at true devotion, that of self-sacrificing love. And then in 4 through 8, in contrast, we see self-serving hypocrisy. 
And then a 9 through 11, self-protective hostility. So Mary, self-sacrificing love. Judas, self-serving hypocrisy. And then the chief priests, self-protective hostility. Let's look at what Mary does here and how it indicates her heart of true devotion. Self-sacrificing love. Again, in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John's time reference, six days before Passover, informs us that Jesus is now entering the very last week before his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, what we commonly call the Passion Week because of the Greek word pasco, which means to suffer. It's the suffering week. John will devote chapters 12 through 19 to this one week, and then chapters 20 and 21 to the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. He does so because these events are absolutely critical to understanding who Jesus is and what he accomplished. So John has 21 chapters. He devotes 12 through 21 to this week and the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. Now, all of Jesus' life on earth is important, but the gospel writers don't record everything. They focus our attention primarily on Jesus' identity and saving mission. This is exactly what John tells us as he talks about his reason for writing this particular gospel. In John 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs. He did many other miracles with a message in the presence of the disciples, so there are eyewitnesses to them, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The bulk of what all four Gospels record bears testimony to the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. Now, Matthew and Luke record the events related to his birth, but, but even these are to establish Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah, the Savior King that God had promised ever since the Garden of Eden. John starts with his preexistence to underscore that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, who came in human flesh. He records events of Jesus' earthly ministry, not just his teaching and miracles, but his ongoing conflict with the religious leaders who held sway in his day. But John spends the most time focused on this last week leading to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from that? Well, clearly, John would not have us walk away from his gospel with the idea that Jesus was just a great teacher and wonderful miracle worker. John is determined that we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, slain for our sins, and risen again. Any version of so-called Christianity that does not focus on Jesus in terms of his self-sacrificing, saving mission misses the point of why he came to earth at all. 
All the important things that Christians believe and do cannot be divorced from this grand theme of redemption. Think about it. Without it, Christianity devolves into mere do-goodism, philosophy, ethical codes. It's just one of the garden variety attempts of mankind to win favor with God and do good to people. But it has no power to save. It has no reach beyond the grave. You remember that Bethany is only two miles outside of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the chief enemies of Jesus who want to put him to death have put out a warrant for his arrest. Lazarus is at the meal in honor of Jesus. If this is the same meal that Matthew 26 and Matthew 14 describe, then they are eating in the house of one called Simon the leper, evidently healed by Jesus. Matthew and Mark do not name Mary, but John does. And they record that she broke an alabaster vase or box of this expensive spikenard ointment and anointed his head. John records that she anointed his feet. A pound of ointment could certainly cover both. It was a lavish gift poured out on Jesus. And to wipe his feet with her hair, what if somebody did something like that when you were having a meal? You say, well, well, in our culture, that wouldn't be acceptable. In their culture, it wasn't acceptable either, okay? Maybe even less so, okay? It, it was extravagant, even shocking expression of love that broke the bounds of normal respectability. The aroma filled the room, and Jesus declares in Mark that Mary's act will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world today is in part fulfillment of that. Mary did this in the company of the most devoted followers of Jesus, but they, even they, were taken back by her extravagant expression of self-sacrificing devotion. So, what is Jesus going to do with it? Well, Jesus connects her action to His coming burial less than one week away, How much she understood about what Jesus was about to undergo is not completely clear, but her self-sacrificing expression of love mirrored his self-sacrifice that would demonstrate God's love for sinners in desperate need of redemption. Jesus talked a lot about his coming crucifixion during the last six months of his earthly ministry. His disciples didn't like it. They recoiled at what he kept telling them. In fact, you remember that that Peter had the the, um, bravado to actually rebuke Jesus. And Jesus said he was thinking like Satan. He responded early on that they were thinking the way man thinks, not in line with God. They didn't fully understand what God's saving mission would require and what followers of Jesus were called to do. And it's in that context, that context of of recoiling at the self-sacrifice of Jesus That Jesus says this, he follows up with these words in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Without the cross, there would be no ransom for our sin. Without the self-sacrifice of God, the Son, there could be no salvation of sinners. All those who understand then what Jesus came to do, the ones that are trusting the power of His work enough to follow Him, 
People like that display a willingness to sacrifice themselves as well. It is what true love gladly does, whether you are God or a man or a woman. True love sacrifices self, true devotion. True devotion to God honors God the Son in His self-sacrificial mission, and true love for Him counts Him worth any and every sacrifice. Mary's gift of love was costly, 300 days' wages. It was extravagant. It was beyond the bounds. It made other disciples uneasy and even angry. It seemed to be going too far, but they were wrong, and she was right. Jesus deserves this level of devotion. He accepted her gift, and he commended her extravagant expression of love. He connected it to his own extravagant expression of love for human beings. And he rebuked those who found fault with her costly, self-sacrificing act of devotion. So when we fast forward to today, when you look at our own lives, here's a question that we need to ask. These are questions we need to ask about our own devotion to the Lord. What are you willing to sacrifice out of love for Jesus? And what are you unwilling to sacrifice? You know, think about the things you know God wants. Think about the things that would express love to Him. Where do you find yourself recoiling? And what self-sacrificial devotion of others makes you uncomfortable or judgmental? When do you find yourself criticizing expression of devotion or worship to the Lord? And how does your worship of Jesus reflect the self-sacrificial nature of His gospel? You know, if all of life we're made to worship God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever, if all of life is worship, then all of life needs to have this dimension of self-sacrifice to it. Where are you sacrificing yourself for the glory of Christ and for the good of others? In, in what ways are you doing that? You know, if you look at this new year, this question to ask, how can I, how can I give of myself more to honor Jesus in a greater way? So we see this portrait of self-sacrificing devotion, but then we also see in this scene self-serving hypocrisy. We read in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So a typical wage for a day laborer uh, would be one denarius a day. So this is 300 days' wages for a common laborer. It's a lot of money. Think about minimum wage, okay? 300 days of minimum wage. That's, that was the worth of this particular ointment. Judas said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When we read the accounts of this event in Matthew and in Mark, we find that Judas was not the only one who leveled this charge against Mary. It's possible that he was the instigator or the most vocal. It's good and it's right to give to the poor. Judas was right about that. It's not uncommon for those, however, who preach most about taking care of the poor to be the most stingy in giving of their own resources to do so. I mean, Judas is a thief, and he wants Mary to give her money to the poor, and he wants to use Mary's money for himself. And there's a lot of people like that still. They prefer spending other people's money to help the poor, but they won't lift a finger themselves. But the Scriptures would teach otherwise. The Scriptures teach us that whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. It's a tangible expression of recognizing every human being as being made in the image of God. True religion, according to James, cares for the vulnerable. True religion devotes itself to urgent needs of people around them. If you've been born again, Titus 3 says you should make it your business to address urgent needs. Those who have been born again, their, their very character changes. In Ephesians 4, it says, that, look, the person who used to be a thief, let him no longer steal. Rather, let him labor with his hands so that he has something to give to other people. So he goes from being a taker to being a giver. That, that's an evidence of someone that has been transformed by God because God's a giver, and we become givers like him. So it's an ongoing concern of truly godly people to give to the poor, to anyone in need. Jesus affirms that this will always be so because in this world there will always be those who are poor for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's their own fault, but many times it's not. There are all kinds of, of disasters and problems that can happen that can take a person into great poverty and need. Needs are everywhere. But devotion to Jesus has to go beyond charitable giving. There are many philanthropists in the world who don't give Jesus devotion at all. They don't understand who he is or what he came to do. They, they consider it an extravagant waste to give toward his honor. They consider it, for instance, they would say, you're wasting your time here this morning. Why would you waste your time giving praise to God and, and listening to his word? Why would you waste your money giving in an offering plate? To spend resources on making Jesus known as the promised Savior seems impractical to them. They are earthbound and time-bound in their thinking. But anyone who loves God cannot turn a blind eye to a brother or sister lacking in basic life necessities, according to 1 John. We must do more than minister to just physical needs. The body will eventually die. Food that we give, the clothing, all of that, that body that we're protecting eventually dies. What then? We need something more than that. 
Human beings need a Savior who can rescue them from the grave. So our concerns cannot be merely earthbound. It's not that giving to the poor is excluded. It's that that's not enough, that there's more to life than just that. I need to know, am I reconciled to my Creator who made me in His image to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever? Have I been made right with God through Christ so that I'm no longer condemned to the lake of fire that burns forever? Life is more than just food and clothing. It's lost people who pursue these things as the greatest concerns. We must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6. The Lord will see to it that all our physical needs are supplied. Well, Judas, Judas was tone deaf to these gospel truths. He saw Jesus as his ticket to wealth and power in the messianic kingdom. And, you know, he's getting in on the ground floor, and, and this kingdom would rule the earth. Judas wanted nothing to do with sacrifice. He cared nothing for being right with God. He had closely observed Jesus in his public ministry, but his calculations had no category for justification from sin, reconciliation with God. He cared little for eternal life. He wanted the here and now. He preached in Jesus' name. He had done miracles alongside of the others. Matthew 7 is going to talk about people like this. But when he observed Mary pour out extravagant devotion toward Jesus, it was disturbing to him. Well, what was his problem? Well, John explains the core problem Judas suffered. It was a heart problem. His heart had already turned away from Jesus, for he was to be the one to betray him. He was already planning it. When you've turned against someone, it irritates you to see others fawn over him. And Judas' heart, love for earthly wealth, had already made him a thief. He wanted the 300 days wages that Mary's precious ointment was worth in the bag that he was entrusted to oversee because he stole from it for himself from time to time. It was his slush fund. Judas didn't care about the poor. He cared about himself. His criticism was a cover. Criticism of others is often cover for a divided heart and for hidden sin. Judas followed Jesus for the same reason he kept the treasurer's bag for what he could get out of it. Many follow the pattern of Judas. They keep company with Christians because doing so gives them some kind of advantage in the categories of life they actually value. They are not spiritually minded people. They're all about budgets, buildings, and popularity. They follow Jesus for health and wealth and respectability and power. If Jesus ever doesn't come through for them, if they're called, for instance, to suffer for his sake, they feel betrayed by him and will betray him themselves. So if you're a true follower of Jesus, guard your heart. Don't let idols grow there. They will drain away your life, and they will turn you against true devotion to Jesus. So what advantage 
Are you actually seeking and following Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, why, why do I do this? Why, why am I a Christian? Why, why do I engage in Christian things? Why? What is the advantage to it? And what kind of a loss could make you consider forsaking Jesus? Pretty popular today, don't you think? To forsake Him? What, what kind of advantage? People do, people do what they want. Their desires, our desires drive our behavior. What is it you desire that would take you away from Jesus? And that leads to another question. What kinds of hypocrisy? So you, you put on a good face, but something else is going on inside. Have you allowed to grow in your life? if any. Now, we're all hypocrites by nature. You know, whenever anybody says, oh, I don't go to church because there's just a bunch of hypocrites, they say, well, <laughs> join the crowd, you know, because none of us like to expose how bad we can be. We like to put our best foot forward, okay? But, but to live a life of hypocrisy where you know you've got this veneer that looks good while you nurse something that you know is bad, that's really dangerous. So is there any kind of hypocrisy like that that you've allowed to, to happen in your life that you need to deal with? And if you find yourself critical of those who show devotion to Christ, you know, it's like, it seemed like, maybe not so much this year, but last year and the year before, is that COVID made people weird, you know, just at each other's throats. It, it was just like evangelicals were the favorite whipping boy of people who used to be evangelicals. No. If you find yourself critical of those who show devotion to Christ, what kind of heart issues might you be trying to hide? It's really, you know, being in pastoral work and, and trying to, to come alongside and help people through difficult things. One of the features of someone who's fallen into sin and, and resist repenting from it, is, is they start just, they start criticizing everybody. They become very judgmental of other people. The smallest things they call attention to. Um, in fact, usually whoever's talking the loudest in the most judgmental terms, you can count on it. There's like some of the worst sins imaginable going on. Because people that are repentant in their heart um, they know how prone to sin we are, and they tend to be humble, and they tend to, they tend to try to believe the best about other people, and they try to give other people room for repentance. The ones that are, that are, are taking them to the whipping post usually are trying to divert attention. It's just human nature to do that. We've done it ever since we were kids, okay? So we see that in other people, but let you know, if you find yourself developing a particular critical attitude toward another person, let it kind of be a warning flag to you that maybe there's something going on in your own life that you need to deal with. Well, let's deal with this third category of people that we see in the text, and that's self-protective hostility of these chief priests. In verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. By the way, that kind of proves that Lazarus did rise. 
you wouldn't have to kill him again if he were still in the grave. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, it's possible that many in this crowd were chasers of whatever is sensational. Lazarus, for a time, you can imagine, was somewhat of a celebrity. Come see the guy who died in his back. Come eat dinner with him. A celebrity draws a crowd. But among them were likely those who understood that the resurrection of Lazarus was a message from God, a sign from God, regarding who Jesus actually is. And they believed in him as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. That's why John includes this in his gospel. Now, the chief priests didn't care how sincere the faith of the crowd was. They just didn't like it that more people were following Jesus. His popularity threatened their own power. They'd already stated it could catch the attention of the Roman authorities and bring trouble on the whole nation. If any of these followers actually did believe what Jesus was teaching, that wouldn't be good either because they would cease having high regard for these religious hucksters who had made a lucrative business from temple worship. You know, even what begins as legitimate, and certainly temple worship was a good thing, God had ordained it, even what begins as something good can be hijacked into nothing more than a religious business to gain and preserve wealth, power, and prestige. These high priests were experts at turning religion into profit and power. Real devotion to God threatens such business enterprises, even if they're called Christian. They want Jesus dead because Jesus brought true religion that exposes their fraud. And now Lazarus must die too because he was giving greater credibility to Jesus. These men refused to deal with what the resurrection of Lazarus actually meant. Instead of investigating further, instead of rethinking their opposition to Jesus, all they can think of is how to neutralize the threat. They care nothing whatsoever about whether God was at work. They refuse even to consider that maybe they need to repent and believe in Jesus themselves. What Judas did on a small scale, these men had made into big business. And I think we naturally recoil from such religious fraud. The world is full of it. But mainly when we see it in other groups and in other people. What these men are doing is really a very human thing. It is natural to the unregenerate heart and to the heart of even the believer who is backslidden. This sort of thing starts at the heart level just as it did in the defection of Judas. It is something every family and every church, every Christian institution has to guard against. It is so very easy for our devotion to Jesus to become all about us, our school, our church, our institution, because we are part of an effort dedicated to Jesus we just assume that we are doing the Lord's work. But over time, our decisions can become more about our own survival and prosperity than about loyalty to Jesus. If God shows himself active in some other person or some other church or some other group or institution, we consider it a competitive threat, not a reason to praise God and rejoice with them because God is blessing them. And when we are confronted for our own sinful behavior, rather than repenting, we double down and try to silence whoever had the courage and concern to approach us. These are signs of the same self 
protective hostility that characterized these chief priests, enemies of Jesus. So if you find yourself hostile to other Christians, churches, institutions, what reasons in your own heart and life could be the cause? And when you're really honest with yourself, what may matter more to you than actually worshiping Jesus from your heart? And what evidence do you see in your life that you may be resisting his call for you to repent from sin and to trust him more deeply? You know, everything depends on whether you will come to Jesus as you truly are. Everything depends on whether you will give him the worship he deserves for what he's come to do. There's, there's, so much, there's so much trappings to religion. There's so many other things that, that we can elevate that, that kind of keep us from actually dealing with where we are in our hearts and whether we are truly devoted to Jesus. Is your life one of self-sacrificing love? Or is it actually self-serving hypocrisy or self-protective hostility? These are questions we must ask if we would follow Jesus with all our hearts. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word and, Lord, the insights that it gives into our own hearts, the, the way it shines light on our world, the way it shines light on our worship. God, we, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We, we can't even know our hearts as you know them. But Lord, our desire would be to have hearts clean before you, hearts truly devoted to you. Lord, let, let nothing about the mechanics of worship and of serving you be, be a, a shield or a cover, a mask, for what's actually going in in our hearts. Lord, may our hearts be completely yours. May we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then that, out of that, love our neighbors as ourselves. May we be devoted to you truly for the glory of God, for the beauty of Jesus, and for the advancement of his gospel that others might be drawn to him. For it's in his name we pray.